Welcome to episode two of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. This week, I will tell you the story of Mark Twain, arguably the first great American writer. Before we get to his story, I have a request. If you like the concept of this podcast and what you're hearing so far in these first couple episodes, please rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't have a marketing budget, so the only way more people will become aware of this podcast is through you. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to reform or pause and reflect. This is one of many famous quotations attributed to Mark Twain, and I think more than any other, it defines who he was. He was a born contrarian, always questioning the received wisdom of his society and the things other people took for granted. He always believed it was precisely the things everyone around you assumed to be true that was most in need of questioning. But where did this contrarian come from? He was born Samuel Langhorne Clemens, November 30th, 1835, in the small town of Florida, Missouri, shortly after the arrival of Halley's Comet. And he always believed that he would go out with the comet as he came in with it. And indeed, that turned out to be correct. He died shortly after the comet returned in 1910. His early life was typical of the American West at the time. He grew up in what we would now consider to be a small town, but which was a bustling community on the Mississippi River for its time. It was still very much a frontier, uh, a river town, where the young Samuel Clemens would have watched riverboats plying their trade up and down the banks, uh, everything from the great paddle wheelers to uh, simple rafts tied together by farmers to carry their produce to market. And it was also a time and place where slavery was legal. Young Samuel Clemens would have seen people who were enslaved, uh, and he lived in a culture where he would have been taught that there was nothing wrong with that. Uh, he would have heard speeches from politicians and sermons from pastors who claimed that it was a positive good and that those who opposed slavery were basically thieves. I'm telling you this because Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, would go on to become one of the great critics of slavery and racism in the 19th century. And I think... It's remarkable how far he went along that path, considering the culture that he was born into. 
More on that later. Like a lot of people, at that time he had a tough childhood. It was a, a tough world, a frontier world. His father died when he was 11, and without his father's economic support, he couldn't stay in school. He left after fifth grade, became a printer's apprentice. This was a fortuitous turn of events because it gave him exposure to the world of words, even though his role was primarily not as a writer or creator. His role was more mechanical to set the type, assist with the physical work of printing. Uh, he did have some opportunity to contribute from time to time an article. And in those early efforts, you see the first inklings of what would become his trademark humor and satire uh, that uh, he would become so well known for. Uh, over the course of his life, almost all of his written work is characterized by uh, a certain degree of cynicism, of satire, of making fun of the things that society holds sacred. And uh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, always believed that you could say things in humor and satire that you weren't allowed to say otherwise. But he was still young, and he didn't yet want to devote his career to writing. He wanted to do what he had always wanted to do. What every boy growing up along the Mississippi River at the time wanted to do. He wanted to be a steamboat pilot. Now, this was the era of the great riverboats. And you can imagine the appeal that the, they would have to a kid growing up along the Mississippi. Uh, these huge, for the time, majestic ships moving along under what still seemed a nearly magical technology of a steam engine moving against the current. Uh, it must have seemed almost miraculous uh, watching these little cities on the water filled with luxury, gambling, drinking, people having a good time, exchanging information, it must have seemed like the most exciting place to be in the world for a child at that time. And he, Clemens, wanted to be a pilot. He wanted to be the one to drive one of those mighty ships, riverboats, up and down the river. And it was an ambition that he would carry through on. He uh, became an apprentice pilot in 1857 and eventually got his full-blown pilot's license. And he worked on the river for four years, from 1857 to 1861. Now, the pilot's role is a lot harder than you might think. You might think you're just going up and down a river. How hard could that be? You're just steering a boat but there was a lot more to it than that. This was before sonar. Uh, this was before modern mapping techniques. And so what a pilot really needed to learn was not so much how 
to steer the boat, that bit was easy. But to learn the river, the pilot had to know every snag, every crook. He had to recognize from subtle cues, like a slight ripple or deviation in the water that wasn't there before, that there might be something that would threaten the boat, uh, that there might be a sandbar that wasn't there before, uh, there might be uh, a tree that had fallen in the water that threatened to rip out the boat's bottom. It was no exaggeration to say that everyone on the riverboat put their lives in the hands of the pilot, and they were highly respected because of it, arguably even more than a captain. A uh, riverboat pilot who could consistently get their boat up and down the river without incident was extremely valued. And Mark Twain loved it. In fact, the name Mark Twain comes from his time on the river. It means two fathoms, or roughly 12 feet, which was the depth that a riverboat of the time could comfortably clear uh, without any worries. It's likely that Twain may have spent many more years as a riverboat pilot if it weren't for the intervention of the most significant historical event of the 19th century, the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865. When the war started in 1861, it really put civilian river traffic uh, to a halt. The river, like so much else of American society, was militarized. And Clemens was caught up in it. He very briefly uh, became part of a Missouri militia unit uh, for just about two weeks before deciding the war wasn't for him. And he hopped a wagon train heading west and went far out to Virginia City, Nevada to start a new life on the new frontier. Now, a lot has been made of his two weeks of Civil War service and the fact that he left at that point. Uh, people who like to criticize Mark Twain uh, point out that the Missouri militia unit he joined was aligned with the Confederacy and therefore call into question his views on race and slavery. Uh, this is trivial, I think. Uh, he was a Missourian who was caught up at the time. The governor of Missouri had called for militia, and he was swept up with it. But as soon as he could get out of it and leave, he did. Now, why didn't he then turn around and join the Union Army? Uh, I think he was conflicted. Uh, this was a war between states. Uh, he was a Missourian. I don't think he wanted to go to war against his brothers and friends, uh, against people he'd known. Uh, but I think he also didn't believe in the cause of the South. And so he decided to opt out entirely. And if you want to know 
his beliefs and attitudes towards race and slavery, there's ample material. Uh, his writing, which largely centered around those issues, uh, and which really left no doubt that he was inveterately opposed to racism, and that despite his upbringing, he was deeply skeptical and then hostile to the concept of slavery. Twain tried his luck as a miner. Virginia City, Nevada was one of these mining boom towns that had arisen following the gold rush of 1849 uh, as people discovered that there was a wealth of minerals, precious metals, to be mined in the American West. Uh, and one of the biggest loads of precious metals was the Comstock load uh, near Virginia City, Nevada. But like so many people, he found that striking it rich, uh, mining precious metal was harder in practice uh, than it seemed in theory. It was hard work and it relied on a great deal of skill and some degree of luck uh, to find precious metal that hadn't been played out, uh, that hadn't been discovered by others. Uh, and so he fell back on journalism, on what he'd started to do with uh, his time as an apprentice printer, contributing articles to local publications. And his trademark wit and humor caught the attention of a broader audience. People began to wonder, who is this guy who has such a an interesting and funny voice, uh, a critical and uh, yet interesting insight into the society around him. And uh, he eventually caught the attention of some publishers in uh, other places. He moved to San Francisco, and he was sent by his publishers to travel uh, to various places around the world, Hawaii, to Europe, and he first became famous, really, as a travel writer. We usually think of him today uh, in reference to his fiction writing. But at the time, he first became well-known to uh, other Americans in his time, writing about the distant places that he'd seen. He was a big believer in travel. He said that, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. As skeptical as he was of his own society, he was equally skeptical of the unquestioned wisdom of the places he visited. And so even though uh, he was sometimes complimentary of the places he visited, he also found Europe in particularly stodgy and overly tradition-bound, and uh, he made some enemies there. Not everybody liked his bracing honesty. 
And another characteristic that came to define him uh, really came out in his travel writing that he he spoke the truth as he saw it regardless of whether other people were offended by it. And I don't know whether that's because he didn't care what other people think, um, but whatever was going on in his mind, he acted as if he didn't care or as if he felt it was more important to tell the truth than to make others happy. Mark Twain did more than writing. He was a man of many interests. He loved science. He cultivated a close and lasting friendship with Nikola Tesla, who was one of the great inventors of the time, uh, who was largely responsible for what we know about electricity. And although Twain was no great inventor, he tried his hand and invented several curiosities, including a self-pasting scrapbook that was quite popular in his own time. Uh, he also became a sought-after speaker and campaigner and philanthropist. He spoke out in favor of women's suffrage and African-American rights, and uh, he put uh, a number of African-Americans through school and supported education of people who uh, hadn't had the opportunity to get an education before because he believed that education was the key to success uh, and really to being a good citizen. He once said that education is the path from cocky ignorance to miserable uncertainty meaning the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And he felt it was important that people explore their own ignorance because that's how you find humility. And humility is very important in functioning in a democracy, in a free society. Of course, he was most famous for his fiction writing. Names like Tom Sawyer, The Prince and the Pauper, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I'm not going to summarize his writing, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the themes that you see recurring in that writing. And one of the themes I think you see is questioning authority, questioning the received values of your society, and the notion that people, ordinary people from humble backgrounds, are just as smart and just as capable as the aristocracy of the time. In The Prince and the Pauper, for instance, the story centers around a uh, literal prince, a royal, who uh, switches places with a poor person, a pauper, whom he resembles. And the pauper gets to be the prince, the prince gets to be the pauper, and in doing, they learn a lot about each other's worlds. Uh, most significantly, the pauper learns that he's just as capable of 
ruling as the princes, and that many of the aristocrats who lead uh, are not nearly uh, as smart and impressive as they think they are. And the prince learns how difficult the lives of the poor uh, are, and to gain some empathy uh, for challenges faced by people uh, who, uh, who didn't grow up with his advantages. In the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, it's a time travel story about a 19th century American who travels literally to King Arthur's Court and in so doing shakes up the uh, stodgy court society of the time, questions their values, introduces new technology. Uh, and um, again, you see this theme that it's good for society to question its values, its received wisdom, its way of doing things. Uh, and in this case, it was an outside agent, someone from another time who did it. But I think his message was for his own time, a message of, uh, of skepticism yoked to progress, a belief in progress. And of course, his most famous work, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which was about a poor boy, an orphan, who uh, runs away from the responsibilities of his society to float down the river, literally, go on a series of grand adventures. But it's not just an adventure story. Along the way, Huck Finn meets up with an escaped slave, and he's deeply conflicted about that, because Huck Finn, like the young Samuel Clemens, grew up in a society where he was told that slavery was a positive good, and that it was wrong uh, to help an escaped slave, that that was in fact a form of stealing, uh, that... It was evil. It's hard for us today to imagine that, but that was the cultural background that Huck Finn, by extension, the author, Mark Twain, was coming from. And you see over the course of the book, Huck Finn struggles with this until at the end there's a decisive moment where he has to decide whether he's going to rescue uh, his friend and they have become friends over the course of the book. Uh, and he struggles with the fact that he knows that's not what his society expects him to do. That's not what he's been told is right. But he decides he's going to do it anyways. And I think that's uh, autobiographical for Mark Twain. It's showing his own evolution, uh, his ability to put aside what he'd been told was right and substitute uh, his own moral values, his own moral intuition. So what is the legacy of Mark Twain? He has the perhaps somewhat dubious distinction of being one of the most banned authors of all time and banned across the political spectrum uh, in his own time, through the early 20th century, he was often banned um, by 
stodgy librarians who were offended by the coarse language in his books, of course, in the South for his anti-racist themes. Uh, today, many misguided folks want to ban him uh, because they view him as a racist uh, for the characters that he portrays, which use historically accurate language and have historically accurate attitudes towards race. Uh, I think this is misguided uh, because if you read his works a little bit more deeply past the surface, you find that he's using those racist attitudes and language uh, as a way of undermining them, uh, as a way of criticizing them by showing how wrong uh, and, frankly, ridiculous they are. Uh, and this is more effective, I think, than pretending such a attitudes never existed. It's a part of history. And the way to address societal problems, Mark Twain, I think, believed, is to talk about them, is to portray them, uh, is to show where they lead. And that's what he did in his writing. He showed that those attitudes led to evil results, that they made otherwise good people do terrible things. And in so doing, he criticized far more effectively than if he had refused to acknowledge uh, that those ideas had ever existed. It really brings us back to the beginning. Mark Twain was all about questioning the prevailing views of his time. Uh, he again said that whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to reform or pause and reflect. But he also believed you have to question your own beliefs constantly and never be too confident that you have it right. Evolution of thought is a good thing. And again, that's reflected in his characters who change their views after having life experiences that expose them uh, to different people's lives. Whether it's the prince learning to see the world through the eyes of a pauper, Huck Finn learning to see the world through the eyes of an escaped slave, that you update your views after learning more about the world. And of course, that ordinary people can and should do extraordinary things. He once said, keep away from people who try to belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that. But the really great make you feel that you too can become great. Mark Twain was an ordinary kid from an ordinary frontier town who went on to become the voice of a generation, arguably the greatest author of his time. The really great make you feel that you too can become great.